0: This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Lord, in your mercy this morning, uh, teach us and instruct us. Send your Holy Spirit uh, to guide us. And uh, we ask for your blessing when we, as we hear your word. And we ask that you would challenge us so that by obeying your word, we may indeed be transformed into your image, the image of your son. And it's in his name we pray, amen. We um, come to a day in which we Commemorate, celebrate every year the baptism uh, of jesus, the baptism of our the baptism of our Lord and um, for those of you who 've been with us uh, in church and to the four or five people who actually listen to the podcast, some of this is repetition because we 've gone over this uh, and uh, at Advent, uh, at Christmas, just after Christmas, and uh, we'll endeavor uh, to keep the repetition short, but the repetition sometimes is uh, indeed helpful. Uh, the second challenge uh, in all of this, of course, is that um, for any preacher, when you come to a feast day, uh, do you preach the feast Do do we preach about baptism or do we preach the text? And uh, that's always uh, a dilemma. I think in in our case this morning, we should probably do do the latter. And so I'll open to Luke chapter 3. And um, we'll begin at verse 15. It says, the people were waiting uh, expectedly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. So what we have, uh, the context of this story, <clears throat> excuse me, is that we have in the, uh, the first century at the... Um, beginning of uh, the ministry of uh, John the Baptist, we have a great anticipation or great expectation uh, amongst the people. Uh, People are waiting for the redemption. They're waiting for the Messianic Age. They're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for God to come uh, and rescue them. And uh, this certainly... Uh, is Is the context in which uh, we find ourselves, and of course we have the ministry of John the Baptist uh, in this in the midst of this expectation, and possibly John himself and his ministry is the one who is heightening uh, or fueling this expectation because john and john 's message uh, is very popular uh, amongst the Jewish people during this time. We know this from josephus we know this from Certainly from uh, the, the book of Acts. And uh, I think sometimes we uh, in the church don't quite understand John fully. We think that John is sending everyone an Evite, right? Inviting everybody, or just saying, now, just, I just want to remind you, put it in your calendars, mark the date. You, you know, the Messiah is coming soon. But John's ministry is much more uh, significant and much more important than that, and a few weeks ago, we spoke about the relevance, continual, uh, continuing revel- relevance of his ministry uh, for us today. And at the, at the heart, the heart of John's, you might say, message, uh, what is anticipate, uh, what is uh, perhaps fueling this anticipation, this great expectation, is John's call to repentance? This is the this is the key. Um, you might uh, know that um, if you're in a Greek Orthodox church uh, or Greek Catholic church, if you look up if you look for look up uh, on the the screen of icons, uh, John the Baptist is always next to Jesus, and he's pointing to Jesus. <clears throat> but John is doing much more than pointing to Jesus. He's actually preparing people. Okay, uh, and having people express this uh, desire or this need, you know, for messianic redemption, uh, for salvation, uh, and it's being done through repentance, not just kind of an abstract uh, uh, anticipation or the, oh, I really hope, you know, you know, God comes and delivers us from this mess. And we've mentioned this several times. Uh, during the advent season is that there is a, a very deep sometimes it 's not so obvious connection between uh, this redemption and repentance, and that uh, is something that uh, runs through the Hebrew scriptures uh, and run and of course flowers in uh, later Jewish eschatology. Uh, and some of the examples, just to remind folks that we've mentioned uh, in the past, uh, would be the year of Jubilee. When does this year of Jubilee start, okay? When does God uh, restore and work redemptively to uh, allow the slaves to go free and to allow families to receive back their, uh, uh, their, their inheritance, their land, after it's been sold or, or rented out. This great uh, restoration happens on not just the 49th year, but it happens on what day? Pardon? It happens on Yom Kippur. It happens after repentance takes place. The redemption and restoration and even transformation, if we'd like to say, is all hinging on repentance. Now, there are many other examples, but let me just mention one, the prophets, when they talk about the restoration of the nation. But sometimes the nation is restored to the land, according to the prophets, before repentance. uh, Sometimes there's repentance and then restoration, but restoration is always connected in the prophets ultimately to some form of return or some form of repentance. And uh, we could go on. And basically even today there's a whole strain of, of, uh, of uh, Jewish eschatology that basically says that uh, the Messiah is waiting for us to repent. Okay, And that when we repent and repent in sufficient numbers, then the messianic age will come. And uh, what is Jesus doing? Why does Jesus go out? Why does he, quote unquote, need to be baptized? And of course, this question uh, disturbs just about everyone. But a number of scholars (laughs) have suggested in recent years have made this connection between repentance and redemption And they understand that uh, Jesus goes out as a way of identifying with his people. And that people aren't only repenting for their own personal sins, people are repenting on behalf of the nation. And Jesus is also there praying for mercy for the nation. Jesus, uh, as we understand from the scripture, has no sin, he has nothing to repent for, but he's identifying with his people. And I love it in, this, in the way that Luke's gospel, which is supposed to be about Jesus and his, the, the identity he has with the whole human family, right? Because the genealogy that we didn't read this morning uh, traces the lineage of Jesus back to Adam and then calls him a son of God. But here Jesus... Um, identifies in a way with his people. He goes out uh, and calls upon God to bring uh, repentance. And in the process, of course, he is baptized by, by John the Baptist. So at the beginning of his ministry, there is a total identification with his people, the Jewish people. At the end of his ministry, by carrying that cross There's not only an identification with us, uh, the human family, and that he suffers and dies and must pass through, uh, must deal with the fear of death. But how does he die? He dies on a cross. He dies like so many hundreds of thousands of other Jewish people did during this period. That Jesus dying on a cross... is the ultimate ultimate identification with the Jewish people. And ironically, sadly, the cross doesn't symbolize that anymore. Instead, it symbolizes oppression and uh, misunderstanding and uh, division. And maybe, God willing, in our lifetime or soon in uh, the, the lifetime of my children, There will be healing between Jews and Christians and the cross will not be such such an offense uh, as it has been in the past. So I mentioned this identity because identity, I think, in the passage is is very important. So I'd like to continue reading from uh, Luke a little bit. Um, For the people were waiting expectantly. John answered them, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Of course, John must stress this because, uh, again, he is incredibly, incredibly popular. His movement obviously took hold in the Jewish world, the Jewish diaspora, uh, the land of Judea. Uh, this becomes a very uh, powerful message in which many people they can uh, can resonate with uh, uh, with this message. And uh, now John has to distinguish the difference between uh, between himself and Jesus. He says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor to gather up the wheat in his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And I think, again, we've mentioned this a number of times uh, in the past few months, but uh, in fact, I I I got angry letters once recently when I said John preached a holocaust or a Pentecost, people wrote and were very furious with me. Um, You haven't lived until you've received hate mail. (laughs) And so what do we mean by that, a Holocaust or a Pentecost? What does John mean by this? And of course this is is John's understanding of judgment is a bit complicated, it sounds a little bit like Qumran, even though I don't believe John was a member of the Qumran community it certainly has echoes or overtones of that type of spirituality. Okay, but John is warning, John is warning that when the Messiah comes, there will either be great blessing, if your heart is right, and if your heart is prepared, or there'll be judgment. And the judgment, by the way, Uh, he will burn up his threshing floor, according to our good friend Steve Notley, who did his PhD on this subject, that uh, here uh, John is prophesying or warning that what will be judged is the temple, okay, and the religious system of its time. And so you're either brought into the barn or you're, you're burned up. Now, Jesus later will have a little bit of a disagreement with John about this. And we see this best in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus understands and appreciates John and says there's no one greater, you know, born of a woman than John the Baptist. But John the Baptist, Jesus will say, you don't, John will say to Jesus in in an indirect, very Jewish way, you don't really fully understand what I'm about that I will indeed one day bring judgment, but the judgment is not now. For now I'm bringing grace and mercy. And when the time is right, I will indeed be the judge of the last days. But that time isn't right this minute. John expected this this judgment to be immediate. And what John didn't understand is that Jesus has, uh, I hate to use the word, In fact, it bothers me to use the word, I'm sorry if I offend anyone. But Jesus has three dispensations, not seven. Jesus understood that time was divided uh, into three and that there were the days of the laws and there was the days of the law and the prophets, there was the days of the kingdom, and there was the days of the world to come. And we're living in the days of the kingdom of heaven. And that judgment, eschatological judgment, that end of days of judgment that John wanted, it's not here yet. It's as Jesus pressed the pause button <coughs> on our CD player. Okay? It's not that Jesus won't judge, he will judge. But uh, that judgment is, judgment is being delayed. In the meantime, there are small judgments, like the judgment that came upon Jerusalem or the judgment that comes on any society that tramples on the poor, or any society that maybe is uh, militaristic, or on any society, eventually on any society that aborts millions of innocent children. Judgment, we will reap what we sow. But the big judgment that John wants is delayed. Okay? These are smaller, intermediate judgments. Uh, Smaller, intermediate judgments. His winnowing fork in his, in his hand, as we read, okay? And then, of course, we see why John the Baptist gets into trouble. So all of these things are, you know, important uh, uh, context to our passage. But what interests me is verse 19, especially, okay? Sorry, verse 20. Verse 22, and when the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. <clears throat> and I love this. And I think it's oftentimes overlooked or oftentimes, oftentimes ignored. Um, David Flusser who was at the Hebrew University who was not only a very uh, insightful New Testament scholar but also kind of an art historian. He said it was interesting that up until the 16th century that uh, when painters, especially in the Renaissance, would show Jesus being baptized, he was always being baptized with a crowd, meaning there were a lot of people standing around. He said art changed, especially after the Reformation, uh, and when we oftentimes see pictures of Jesus being baptized, he's being baptized by himself. Here he comes out with a crowd. He comes out with a community. Uh, And for Jesus, John, and for us today, um, you know, baptism is uh, and should be uh, a public event. I think it is in many churches, but still, oftentimes, when we think of our baptism, we don't understand that we're not only, we're not, not are, not only are we being baptized into Christ, but by joining Christ, we're also becoming a part of His community. Uh, and so b- baptism becomes uh, something very private or something uh, very individualistic. And uh, there's, there's something unfortunate, I would believe, I think about all this, uh, in that the age in which we live in is an age of rampant, rampant individualism. And the way that we uh, live, or we live by the dictum, I think, uh, therefore I am. And, of course, uh, this worldview has brought destruction and enormous damage to all of us. It's destroyed family. It's destroyed community. It's destroyed church and led to a certain lawlessness and spiritual, uh, spiritual anarchy. Really, the biblical view, which is kind of implicit in this verse, is I I, 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 I am, sorry, because I belong. Where do we get, ultimately, where do we get our identity from? How do we construct that identity? Okay, it's because we're members of, the, of we're in the family of Jesus, we're in the family of God, and because that's been lost on us, although I think it's being—I restru- think there's been finally a reaction against this kind of uh, radical individualism that came to us with modernism and postmodernism. But because of this, you know, we uh, are passing through an epidemic. And that the epidemic is called loneliness. And it's called rootlessness. And wasn't it Mother Teresa who said that uh, the most destructive epidemic of our age is the epidemic of loneliness? Yes. Because we're unattached, and we're unaffiliated, and we're unconnected. But here... Even Jesus shows us or models for us that um, us entering into the family of God is indeed a community, community event. Um, And then we have the... Heavens, uh, we have next, Jesus praying. And uh, of course, Jesus praying in Luke is, I think it's everybody knows quite well or anyone who's even read the Gospels in a uh, cursory way knows that in Luke, Jesus begins his ministry with praying at the baptism. He ends his ministry Praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. That the whole ministry of Jesus is couched in prayer. That uh, after he cleanses the leper in uh, chapter 5, he prays. Uh, Before selecting the 12, he prays. Uh, Before he asks the disciples, Who do you say that I am? Jesus is praying. Before the transfiguration, he's praying. What does this teach us? I think it tells us something more than that, well, prayer is a good idea. We should always pray. It teaches us instead that the Son of God, which we'll discuss in a moment, lives a life that's dependent upon God. And that at every major step in his life, <clears throat> okay, we see Jesus praying. And certainly, it should be a reminder of uh, to us that certainly we should uh, should and must do must do the same. So Jesus is praying, and he goes down into the water. And of course, you know the um, I, one of the reasons I don't like to talk about baptism is because we get hung up in all the old traditional arguments that you know start with the. Uh, start with the Reformation, and of course, should we baptize children? Should we not baptize children? Can you be baptized more than once? Uh, all of these uh, questions, and of course, the the what is sometimes the what sometimes get lost. But for those who want to argue about the how, okay, the how of Jewish of Jewish ritual washing or Jewish ritual immersion is uh, Jews. Uh, in the Second Temple period, baptized themselves. You didn't put someone in the water, you know, and fill their uh, put, and uh, drown them, uh, and then bring them up. That's it's fine if you want to do it. But simply, Jews would walk into a to a pool, to a river, to a sea, to an ocean, and they would crouch down, squat down three times so that uh, their heads, would be, uh, water would cover uh, every head uh, of their body. Why three times? We don't know, but very likely this becomes the source of Trinitarian baptism. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by the way, to baptize in Hebrew is a reflexive verb. It's something that we do to ourselves. I don't think it's so important, but for those who like to argue the point, for those who are hung up on these on method, that's the method that uh, was used in the first century and certainly used in the early church, because Jewish early Christian baptismals uh, ref- look something like a Jewish ritual immersion bath. But what's more uh, important in all of this is that Jesus goes down into the water. He's identifying with his people. He's identifying with Israel with their future redemption, with God cleansing uh, the people. And of course that cleansing is connected to the Holy Spirit. It's language we hear in the book of Ezekiel, language we hear at Qumran. And when Jesus comes up, there's a voice. And that's what I think is uh, most important in all of this. That voice of God speaking to Jesus. And the voice that comes from scripture, by the way, the voice comes from Psalm 2, from Isaiah 42. The voice simply says, you are my son. With you, I am well pleased. Now just for a minute, what does the voice mean to Jesus? And actually, what does that voice mean to us? Because those are words that in, maybe in, in different ways or in a different context, or in a different structure, God surely speaks those same words to us. You are my son, you are my child, okay? With you I'm well pleased. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be a son? So the, the, you might say that the foundation of all Christology, or the beginning of all Christology, how we under, understand who Jesus is, his divinity, his place in the Trinity, really is found here in the Gospels. And it's a Christology of sonship. It's about this unique relationship that the Father has with the Son. And of course, the Gospels make this really clear. Two weeks ago, we read uh, the story of Jesus being quote-unquote lost in the temple. And what does he say to his parents? He says, I had to be about my father's business. So already at a young age, Jesus has this awareness, he has this sense, okay, of this, the relationship that he has with a father. And of course, later he'll, uh, when he is angry uh, with what's going on in the temple, he'll say, you know, you've made my father's house, you know, a den of thieves. Or he will talk about the, in the parable, of the wicked uh, tenets. He'll talk about the F- Father sending the beloved Son. And obviously Jesus is pointing to himself and making reference to himself. And we have this voice at the baptism, and we also have this voice uh, that we hear, do we not, at the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, at the beginning of the ministry, Jesus is affirmed. His Sonship is affirmed. At the end of his ministry, virtually the end of his ministry, that same affirmation uh, is restated by God himself. So it'd be very easy to say this is about the nature of the relationship. It's a family relationship. You have a father, you have a son. But of course, if we think in maybe modern terms or present day terms, you know, there's lots of us Uh, Many of us who have had rough relationships with fathers uh, and things have not necessarily been easy. But this is maybe more about, uh, as much about function, about 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 the relationship itself and the way that the father and son relate to each other than just the nature of the relationship. And what does it mean to be a son in this context? In this in this context, sonship okay in this context, sonship is about obedience and what it means to be a, <clears throat> what it means to be a son uh, in the gospels, uh, even in the epistles, probably thirteen times Jesus is mentioned as the son of God, but oftentimes it's, it talks about Uh, This about sonship and Jesus being faithful, and certainly in the Book of Hebrews, over and over again, the connection is made between sonship and obedience. So when God is saying you are my son, He's also putting some trust and confidence in Jesus that Jesus will be obedient. And surely, by the way, we all like to talk about ourselves being children of God, and and you know. we, we talk about ourselves as being in this family, et cetera, et cetera. But in this family comes responsibility. And the responsibility is to be obedient. Now, the, just for example, we can read one passage because of the time. And it's a very famous passage. Sometimes we often read this during Holy Week. But Hebrews chapter five, of course, uh, Says So Christ did not, take, did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he he suffered, and once made complete, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And we could go on and on, but we have a time constraint. That sonship whether it's the sonship of Jesus or whether it's our sonship, okay, is indeed closely connected to obedience. That the way that we respond in this relationship is one of uh, loyalty and being faithful, which really leads us to the second part of the voice. And the voice that says to us, the voice that says to Jesus, You know, in you I'm well pleased, or in whom I'm well pleased. And so, you know, the very famous little book by uh, Henry Nowen, which I can, you know, recommend. I think it's The Life of the Beloved, is it not? And uh, Henry makes the point, you know, what did Jesus do to earn this uh, affirmation? Or this, what, what, Great healing had he performed? What teaching had he given? Um, what deliverance from the demonic uh, had he performed? You know, where, where, how is it that God is a f- uh, saying that he delights in Jesus when Jesus has lived this life, this hidden life in Nazareth? And as we discussed two weeks ago, He is uh, uh, learning from his parents, being obedient to his parents until the proper time has come. And and most astonishingly, not one single Christian denomination has been named after him. Today there are 30,000. And yet yet God affirms his son. And that's certainly one way to approach it. And one way to look at it, but I think there's a certain tension in there, because that is indeed true. Okay, but I think it's maybe a, a there's a, a something in a secondary way that we should look at. But first, let me just comment that um, Jesus gets his identity from the Father, from God's voice who speaks to him, and he gets his identity from God speaking. Uh, the scripture to him. And I think for all of us, uh, hopefully there's a lesson in this, that uh, we need to be very careful about how we construct our identity and how we understand who we are. And we live in a time, yes, we, we, maybe this is true in every generation, but we, we certainly we live in a time when uh, it's either our possessions, our financial whatever possessions, our position, our career, uh, our education, uh, our body shape, our ethnicity, sad to say, our sexual orientation, determines identity for us. Is it not true? Who, if you ask the question, who am I? And it doesn't easily and automatically come to your lips. You know, you know, I'm a disciple of Jesus, okay? I'm in the family of God. If that's not our first and primary identity, then we're believing a lie. We're believing a, <clears throat> a lie. And since we live in the age of identity politics, do we not? This is a double lie. And uh, we have to be car- <clears throat> very careful about the voices that we listen to. And these voices will tell us who we are. They'll come from the culture, okay? Everybody, <clears throat> the culture is always trying to define us and put us in a box. And we'll very easily, you know, let the culture do that to us. <clears throat> and we don't know, sometimes we, we, we never fully realize okay, how much we're being influenced, okay, by the culture or by the spirit of the age in which we live. We can only see it in hindsight. I look back at, you know, my walk with the Lord in the 1970s and I think to myself, oh my goodness, how shallow and immature it was because we were so influenced by the therapeutic culture or the culture of therapy or psychology or whatever it may be, we're so influenced by the materialism of the 1970s, by the optimism of the 1970s. We're like that lobster in the pot. We don't know how hot the water is. And this, our culture, and the world in which we live, if we're not careful, even in a, uh, in a, in a quiet way or a non-obvious way, okay, Threaten, I mean, shapes our identity. And we have to be smart enough and strong enough to say no to the culture at times or those parts of the culture uh, which are not biblical. And how do we do that? We do it by, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis says the thing to do is to, uh, the way to uh, ensure you know, that you're not being deceived by your culture is to read old books. You ever heard read it, C.S. Lewis in the article, and you know, you read, you read John Wesley or Athanasius, okay? So you read, somebody who lived in the past may be just as blinkered as we are, but they don't have the same issues. So I would suggest that we read an old book, but the old book I suggest that we read is the scripture. And that we saturate ourselves with the scripture, not just a passage here and there, but passages and books of the Bible. That we know this, that we allow God to speak to us, okay, through this. By the way, we are also, our identity comes to us through our own brokenness, okay, Uh, whether it's self hatred or arrogance. And we'll construct an identity for ourselves. Sometimes it comes from false voices in our family uh, or our friends. And often, sometimes even the devil himself will, will uh, um, you know, whisper in our ear or tell us, look, you're this, you're that, you're a failure, you're never going to succeed, whatever it may be. But here Jesus gets his identity from God himself, and by listening to that voice, And I think that voice still speaks to us. It can tell us, it does tell us that we are the beloved. We are the beloved. In us, with us, God is well pleased. But here's the catch. The catch is that it comes with a special responsibility. And Jesus, before he did one miracle, God says, with you, I'm well pleased. But it also could be that God is saying with, to Jesus, with you I'm well pleased because for 30 years you've waited patiently. You've submitted yourself to the, your parents. You've grown in wisdom and in favor. You know, you've learned how to build a house or build a, uh, uh, you know, a cistern, whatever, And God is, God is affirming Jesus for his faithfulness. And I think both is true for us. Both is true for us. If we will allow ourselves to hear God's voice. Just as Jesus did. Jesus is always praying. I doubt he's sending God a laundry list all the time. God, I need, you know, six pounds of potatoes, three kilos of sugar, you know, and make it quick, you know. That the nature of prayer is listening prayer. That Jesus would have been nurtured by the Shema, which is, says to listen up, hear, O Israel. You know, listen to God's voice, as we uh, mentioned before. So we need to hear God's voice. We need to hear God's voice as it speaks to us through Scripture, and a voice that contradicts Scripture. Is a, voice to be, that is a voice to be rejected. And by the way, when we hear a message from our culture and when we see a movie or hear a pop song or hear a conversation and there's something insidious about it or even something subtly wrong, we need to say to ourselves, I reject that. I'm not going along with that. There needs to be an active resistance. We don't need to be pushed along by the culture and we need to to um, further if we want to hear that voice there's going to be a dependency on God in prayer just as Jesus depends on his father and allows that voice to guide him and direct him throughout his ministry so yes we're the beloved as Jesus is for God so loved the world We love him because he first loved us first, and God is indeed delights in us, but God also, there's also a special responsibility. And by, you know, giving us, by saying that we're sons and daughters, there's an expectation that we will be obedient. By giving us the spirit, what is implied is mission, that we will be about God's business. We will be about the work of the kingdom of heaven because the kingdom of heaven doesn't work by, isn't working by therapists or social workers, as wonderful as they may be. It works by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in next week's gospel, when Jesus is at the synagogue in Nazareth, that becomes clear to us why the spirit is given, why the spirit is poured out. Not just for prophetic utterance, as it was understood in this, in, generally in the Second Temple period, but to empower us, okay, to do God's will. And by the way, it's the Spirit that also will also help us to shape and form that identity. So we do not believe a lie. Let's pray, Father in heaven, we uh, do come to you. And we pray that uh, your baptism will not just be some historic event that happened a long time ago, but we pray that it will continually, Lord, be relevant to us. And Lord, we ask that you would indeed speak to us. We ask for the affirming voice of the Father to speak to each one of us, to bring us blessing, to bring us uh, our identity, To affirm us as to who we are, but also to challenge us to be obedient and to be faithful to the mission that you've given each one of us, that you've given to the Church. Lord, in your mercy we ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.